This is Psalm 33, the entire psalm. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great, uh, great might... It cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of our Lord. Well, here we are this morning. We're making uh, quite a jump. Uh, We're jumping from uh, epistolary literature, uh, an epistle, a letter in the New Testament to uh, poetry in the Old Testament. We're uh, jumping from uh, communication through words to, believe it or not, communication through images. That's a fair assessment of poetry. Uh, We are jumping from uh, a letter that teaches us how to think and also uh, what to do to a poem that teaches us how to feel and also what to do. What is a psalm? You know that word psalm? I don't don't know if you knew this. It actually comes from a a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, That's where the word uh, psalm comes from. But uh, that Greek uh, copy of the Old Testament is translating a Hebrew word that doesn't sound like psalm at all. Uh, That word is tehillim. That word actually uh, shows up in verse 1 of our passage this morning. Uh, Tehillim is plural for uh, praises or songs of praise. That's That's the title of the book of Psalms, the book of praises. And whereas last week we were looking uh, at uh, prose uh, in a letter, we're looking at poetry this morning. Uh, It's a poetry, though, not uh, not like poetry in the English language. In the English language, when we think of poetry, we think of uh, rhyme, uh, we think of meter, 
but in Hebrew, poetry is uh, in, in terms of parallel lines. And so uh, you'll see that the, that the lines, the, the right margin, is jagged. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrew poetry uh, stops one line and goes to begin another line and does that usually in couplets. Uh, uh, the second line uh, somehow having a relationship with the first line, and that's how uh, Hebrew poetry uh, works. And it was C.S. Lewis who commented on the fact that, uh, isn't it amazing that God would uh, use Hebrew poetry to uh, minister to the entire world of people who speak different languages? Because if uh, poetry is merely uh, rhyme and meter, that doesn't translate very well, or it doesn't translate easily. But Hebrew poetry is about uh, two lines standing together. And the images of these lines uh, functioning in parallel. And for C.S. Lewis, this is a, this is a beautiful poetry in that it translates so easily. It goes into another language almost effortlessly. Now what we're looking at as we look at poems is we're uh, looking at uh, lyric poetry. Now, lyric poetry is uh, poetry uh, that has a, a theme, and then there's uh, variations of that theme. It's a, it's a united piece. It's, it's uh, well-constructed in such a way that uh, generally one theme is presented, and then over the course of the poem, we get to see that one theme through a variety of angles. This is lyric poetry. Uh, Leland Ryken says that an easy way to understand what kind of poem you're reading when you're looking at the Psalms is to ask yourself this question. Is it uh, more, uh, uh, is, it, is it meditative or is it uh, occasional? And here's what he means by this. Lee Ryken says that uh, all of the poetry in the Psalms is one or the other. He says it's sometimes about a specific occasion, a a struggle that the poet is going through, uh, or a a historical event. Uh, But sometimes the poetry, and this is the majority, is not occasional. It's not based on a circumstance or a situation. It's meditative. It's contemplative. It's the poet stopping and and thinking very slowly about something that we would ordinarily think rather rapidly about. And that's the psalm we're looking at this morning. Psalm 33 is a meditative psalm. It's hard to attach it to a specific occasion. And this is probably the most important feature of a psalm. And then I'll move on. The psalms are written by Christians just like you and just like me. Uh, they're written by uh, Christians who are making their way in life and they're, uh, they're thinking and they're feeling and they're hurting and in this case they're waiting. And we get to be taught how to make sense of the various feelings that we feel as Christians. Now there's a problem with Psalms and I think that in American culture this problem with the Psalms is increasing and that is this. Psalms always take time And psalms take a clear mind. And we live in an age that moves very rapidly, filled with numerous distractions. It's hard for us to slow down. And yet that's what psalms take. And indeed, that's what makes the psalms beautiful. Because a Christian is slowing down, guided by the Holy Spirit, and writing these words, connected images that give words to feelings. Now the poet has slowed down, 
And it makes sense we would need to slow down as well. Well, let me, before uh, I state the theme of this particular psalm, let me state why it is that this series exists on our calendar. I'd like for us to spend the summer looking at psalms that teach us the many things that we ought to be thankful to God for. And so the sermon series is called Worthy of Thanks. They're called summer psalms, but really I think that's mostly just to be cute. These are psalms that talk about the character of God in such a way that they remind us of how thankful we should be. Now, our church has gone through a lot of change over the past few years. And it has been uh, hard. It has been uh, a a little bit uh, confusing for us. We have uh, just endured an awful lot. I think of the Jones family because perhaps I'm selfish, but the Jones family has gone through a lot of change over the past 10 months, but certainly beyond that as well. A lot of change. And maybe if we spend time in the Psalms, we can, we can focus in on, on certain Psalms that talk about the sovereignty of God. They're not particularly Thanksgiving Psalms. There's probably only eight Psalms in the Psalter uh, that are uh, technically Thanksgiving Psalms. But if we can look at Psalms that, that mix uh, the sovereignty and character of God with a, uh, a thankful resolve of the poet, uh, it would help our hearts if we would simply slow down. Remove some distractions by God's grace and reflect upon the numerous ways that we ought to be thankful to a God that has cared for our church over these past few years of change. Well, oftentimes pastors have very good intentions about what a series of sermons will teach a congregation and sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't but uh, there you have it we are going to spend time in psalms that teach us the myriad ways in which we owe thanks to a God who's worthy to receive thanks now this psalm psalm 33 I think is saying this Uh, this psalm is telling us that that a well-oiled heart I know that's a funny phrase certainly not in the Bible but a well-oiled heart is a heart that's ordered by watching the working of God. Now, what is there to thank God for in this? I'm going to make an argument to you that I think the poet is making to us that goes like this. Waiting amidst very tumultuous circumstances and having a glad heart, a heart filled with joy... Those two things actually go together in the Christian life and nowhere else. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, the poet is telling you that it is very dangerous for you to uh, blindly hope through difficult circumstances, to set aside the difficulties of those circumstances, and to well up within you a glad heart. That's tragic, the poet would say to you this morning. But for the Christian, the difficulty of our circumstances and the gladness of our hearts actually goes neatly together. Well, let's dive in and see how that could be. Uh, These these, uh, psalms, uh, lyric poetry is always like this. It's uh, uh, almost always divided into thirds. So there is uh, an introduction, usually in the form of a command. That's what we have in Psalm uh, 33. Uh, And then there's a little miniature sermon or rationale in the very center. And what we are to take away from the psalm is almost always at the very end in the conclusion. 
Did you know that most psalms are divided like that? Well, ours is so that verses 1 through 3 is a, uh, a command. We have in the Hebrew six lines of poetry, but there's five commands, or maybe uh, five and a half commands. The, the, the most strenuous uh, verb that communicates command shows up five times in the first six lines of this poetry. Uh, look, look with me at verses 1 through 3. Uh, shout for joy. Uh, and then praise in the second line is not in that uh, imperative uh, form, uh, but it still uh, feels a bit like a command. Uh, praise uh, befits the righteous. Is that the phrase? But uh, keep going. Shout for joy. Uh, praise. Give thanks. Make melody. Sing a new song. Uh, play well or play uh, skillfully. Or it could be play joyfully. All of these are commands. And so the poet starts by being rather pushy, telling us what to do. And and really what it is that ties these first three lines together is the fact that the first three lines are so noisy. I mean, uh, we have in the Hebrew this word for uh, shout, and it actually opens in line or in verse one, and it closes in verse three. There's there's, there's a different word for shout, but but the shouting is all over the first three lines of this poem. And so, uh, really, uh, we can look at the introduction to the poem as being an introduction in which there's lots of talking. It's more than chatty. It's noisy. And so we're commanded to shout and give thanks and make melody and to sing a new song and to play uh, skillfully. But there's something more that's happening in these first three lines. It could be that in the background of the poet's life, there is some kind of war or hostility or uh, battle Because some of the terminology of these first three lines uh, make us think of a battle of sorts. The the phrase, the singing of a new song, occurs often in the setting of a battle that has been won. Sing a new song. We've won. But I want you to think about the last time you were at an athletic event. When is it when you cheer loudly? I think most of the times we think it's at the very end when my team is won. That's when I cheer loudly. But if you really think about the last time you were at an athletic event, you didn't cheer just then, did you? Surely you didn't. You cheered sometime in the middle as well. Whenever they, there were these uh, victories uh, that, uh, that uh, came prior to the, the overall victory at the end, uh, there was some, uh, some shouting as the battle is taking place. And it could be that verses 1 through 3 are talking about a battle, and, and in the middle of that battle, uh, there has been some uh, shouts for joy. But it's not the shout for joy that it's that's at the end of the battle. And here's why I think that's the case. In verse 20, at the very end, the poet says, our soul waits for the Lord. And then in verse 21, our heart is glad in him. Look at that, verse 21 in particularly, our heart is glad in him, where it is uh, lips and, uh, and, and fingers, the making of music that are glad in him in verses 1 through 3. Uh, the, the psalm, it suddenly gets rather quiet towards the end. And I wonder if the kind of cheery cheeriness at the beginning, the shouting and the noise at the very beginning is the shouting that we would make uh, not at the very end of uh, a battle, but somewhere in the middle. There was a victory there. 
but then something happened the following day, and now the battle doesn't look as certain today as it did yesterday. You see, you see what I'm after, because there's a change, noise to quiet. I think this is uh, a, there's a lesson here. Of course, we need to look and see this defended by the poet. But the lesson is this: is that a Christian has access to both a noisy praise, but also a quiet praise. Do you see what I mean by that? The Christian has access to a very noisy, shouty kind of praise, a music-making kind of praise, but also a quiet praise, a solace of heart, if you will. Now, the very middle of this psalm, verses 10 through 19, attempts to answer this question, why go through the trouble of making such noise? Why go through the trouble of making such noise? And here, what we have in the very center of the, of, of the psalm is, is the poet is preaching to us, giving us a reasonable sermon, uh, various evidences as to why it is that it's appropriate for a Christian to uh, shout in praise. And the first thing he's going to say to us is he's going to say that the poet, that the poet is going to say to us is, is that the poet knows that God is a talker. And the poet wants us to know that as well. Verses 4 through 9 are telling us God's a talker. He makes noise. But then, uh, not only does God make noise, look what happens at verse 10. Uh, so too does man make noise. The first point of the poet's sermon is that God is a, is a noisy talker. But the second point of the poet's sermon is in verses 10 through 12, right in the middle. And that is that the man is a noisy talker as well. And then finally, very tidily, the poet rounds off his sermon beginning at verse 13, and he says that he knows that God talks louder than man. God talks louder than man. God talks and man talks, but God talks louder. Let me tell you uh, what I mean by that. Look at verse 4. The word of the Lord is upright. A reference uh, probably not to the written word, but rather the spoken word. And then in verse 9, uh, God spoke and it came to be. Clearly a picture of creation. God speaks, and when he speaks, things happen. And verse 6 says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and, all the, and by, the, by the breath of his mouth, all their host. That's very closely a quotation of Genesis 2.1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. It's a reflection upon the noisiness of creation. Uh, that is a doctrine that uh, many ministers uh, find can be uh, cast aside. How did God create? Did he necessarily create by words? Uh, yes, he, he created by words. This psalmist seems to be uh, capitalizing upon that. Uh, God speaks, and as he speaks, things happen. And then in verse 7, not only does God speak, uh, look, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. Uh, God actually uh, makes that which he has created work according to his own purposes. Now, verse 7, gathering the waters of the sea as a heap is probably a reference to the Exodus, gathering the waters so that the people could uh, pass through and be delivered from servitude. Now, as God speaks in creation and as God speaks in world events, God is impossible to ignore. The earth, in verse 5, is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. 
And then verse 8 says, let all the earth fear, let all the earth be afraid of the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. Again, be afraid of him. This image of God speaking in creation, God speaking in the events of the world, Uh, The poet uh, shows us this image so that we would understand this, uh, that God is impossible to ignore. Uh, By the way, Paul has done this in the beginning of Romans. Remember Romans uh, 1, he does this. He's impossible to ignore. He's speaking. He's he's making a sound. And so how interesting that the psalm would open uh, with the, the shouts of praise. But look at the shouts of God, would you? He's the kind of talker that everyone has to contend with. We sometimes uh, give God permission to create and permission to work in world history, and then we leave it at that. But the poet doesn't do that. The poet says that that God's work in creation and and God's work of orchestrating the events of world history is impossible to deny. He speaks and he makes himself known. And we could say it this way, as one scholar does, God himself is the great evangelist. Your praise might be noisy, he's noisier. God is a talker. But in verse 10, it's, it's, as, it's as if the poet uh, elevates us and, and carries us into the stratosphere, and then he uh, rapidly, in verse 10, brings us right back down to the ground, and he tells us something that we know all too well. The poet knows that man is also a talker. Verse 11 says that there is a counsel of the Lord. That, that phrase, counsel of the Lord, you see it there. It could be uh, read as uh, wisdom of the Lord or uh, advice of the Lord or uh, probably this might, this might be a better translation. There is a purpose of the Lord. It's as if there is some a great consultation that God, uh, when he acts, he always acts out of his great internal wisdom. And the psalmist says that uh, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. And not only that, the counsel of the Lord comes from his heart for every generation. Now, God's a talker. But as God talks, he speaks out of the wisdom of his heart. Jeremiah uh, speaks this way as well in Jeremiah 23. Uh, he says that God uh, uh, speaks in such a way that the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. And so what the poet is saying is that, yes, God talks, but there is a counsel that informs God's decision. Uh, there is a, a mind of God, a heart of God, and uh, out of that mind, out of that heart, God uh, speaks, and he creates, and he orchestrates the world. But this poet knows that man tries to do the same thing. In verse 10, there is another kind of counsel, you see it? another kind of wisdom, another kind of advice, another kind of purpose, uh, and that is the counsel of the nations. And he, he states it again, the poet does, that there are plans of the peoples. And verse 10 is very important for us. You see what the poet is doing, lifting us up outside of ourselves and bringing us right back down into what we know very well about ourselves that we are a people who make an awful lot of plans ourselves. There are a lot of intentions and plans 
floating around the world, almost like uh, scattered radio waves. Uh, Human plans, well, they're everywhere. And human plans fill your heart and my heart. Now, when the poet speaks about the nations... Now, I don't believe that this is a, an actual political statement for uh, uh, Israel is one way and the nations are another way. Uh, the nation of Israel makes good plans and the other nations make bad plans. Uh, when the poet speaks about the nations, he's really speaking about people in general. He's speaking about uh, the common uh, man. The, the Hebrew word for uh, just the common man uh, shows up uh, a couple of times in this psalm. So he's speaking about the common man and the common woman. Uh, Uh, Both of them are the kinds of human beings that make lots of plans. This is what people do. They make plans. Where do those plans come from? Those plans come from our own internal counsel, our own sense of wisdom and what's right, our own hopes and desires and dreams. We are all planners. But the poet wants us to understand that we are not the kinds of planners like God. Uh, The kinds of planning that we do are the kinds of plans that uh, cause us to find false hope in things, uh, as the example of the king, which will come later. There's a a poem by a Californian poet named Lou Welch, and it's called The Basic Con. He's just trying to describe uh, what it is that makes uh, every con similar. And he says that the basic con works this way. Those who can't find anything to live for always invent something to die for. And then they want the rest of us to die for it too. Those who can't find anything to live for always invent something to die for. It's, It's what it means to be a human being. Left to our own devices, we will come up with some magnificent plan that helps us to make sense of the world around us and the hurts that we feel inside of us. No one is completely without answer. We make plans. You know, one wonders if when the poet says in verse 11, the plans of God's heart which is a very unique expression in the Hebrew, but it does show up in some interesting places. But one wonders if in verse 11, when he mentions the plans of God's heart, he actually wants us to look at the other side of that, and that is the plans of man's heart. And there is a passage in Genesis 6 that is strikingly similar to verse 11 of Psalm 33. And I wonder if Genesis 6 is in his background. Do you want to hear what this verse says? Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a bit of a speculation, perhaps, but I do wonder if Genesis 6 is in the back of the poet's mind in uh, Psalm thirty-three, eleven. It could be this. It could be that the poet himself understands very well what he's talking about. It could be that the poet himself understands what it's like to plan a lot, what it's like to have a human purpose, what it's like to have a human sense of wisdom. It could be that right here in the middle of his sermon, when he reminds us that man talks as well, that the poet knows very well what man talking is like. It's a false hope. It's a plan of some sort that will never deliver what it promises. 
And so the poet then, after having launched us into the sky to understand that God is a talker and then brought us down into our own souls to understand that we are talkers ourselves, in verse 13, he actually teaches us. He says, don't you know that God talks louder than you do? That God's plans are different from your plans. God's creation and God's works are everywhere, seen by everyone. They're undeniable. The earth is full of his steadfast love. And this ought to lead all humanity, all humanity, to fear him. But they don't. They instead make their own plans, and they plan and plan and plan without the plans of God. And we could say it this way. They plan and plan and plan as if they have a story of redemption that is better than God's own story of redemption for them. And the poet knows this because the poet knows what it's like to plan himself. And what the poet has said thus far is that everyone needs to stop planning and notice the God who speaks. Set all of your plans aside and everyone ought to be afraid. And here he's given us proof of that. The poet knows that God talks louder. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, you and I plan. All men and women plan. But they can't do this, can they? We plan, but we can't, uh, we can't appear up uh, into heaven and see the very throne room of God by our own strength. We, we can't even see his works properly. Uh, we have to be uh, told through Holy Scripture uh, how it is we ought to think about God's work in history. We can't do what God does looking down from heaven, seeing all the children of man. You see... In verse 15, God does something else. He sees all of our deeds. Now, this is what poetry does. You see, the poet began by by asking us to look and see the deeds of God. And all of us would nod and agree, yes, there are things that God does that we can see. But then in verse 15, the poet turns all of that against us and he says, God sees your deeds and God sees my deeds. And more than that, God sees our hearts. That he himself has fashioned. Have you ever made plans, even complex plans, uh, and then missed something big? And you, you almost you, you kick yourself afterwards. Had you had you caught that, then uh, everything would have gone far more smoothly. I think we know that feeling. Uh, we make plans, we miss something, and had we caught it, everything would work more smoothly. And the poet seems to know this. And he seems to know this by sharing something in verses 16 and 17 that really is a reminder of a failure. One wonders if the poet knows exactly who this king is. We're not told who the author of this poem is, but perhaps it is a king himself, David. But verses 16 and 17 offer to us a reminder of a king who is so sure that his army was strong enough to defeat his foe. He was so sure. And he was so sure that his weaponry would actually save him, that all of his soldiers were fitted well enough to be protected. 
but he wasn't protected. And the battle didn't go according to plan. And the poet says this was a false hope. Now, what the poet has done to us, the poet has placed us in a rather tragic predicament. God talks, and we try and talk, but we aren't working with the same knowledge, so God's talk is always going to be right. My talk is always going to be uh, uninformed, and I'm always going to chase after false hopes. Why? Why would the poet bring me to this place? The poet takes us on this long path so that we might see something. Remember, this poem is a meditation. We would normally just jump to the conclusion, but the poet is uh, taking us slowly so that we would, we would think about what it is that we, that we cling to as Christians. In, in 18 through 19, the poet knows that the eye of the Lord is on him, uh, just like the eye of the Lord is on the rest of mankind. But he understands something that's different. The poet understands that there is a fear of the Lord that is different than the fear that shows up in verse 8. The fear that shows up in verse 8 is the different kind of fear than the fear that a Christian experiences and different than the fear of the poet. In verse 8, there is a fear simply because God speaks and he works, he's doing something, and he's unstoppable and he's undeniable. But there's a fear that's actually a saving fear. The, The army couldn't save the king, the weaponry couldn't save the king, but there is a fear in verse 18 that's a hope not in an army, but in God himself. You see, the poet holds out that there is a fear that leads to the deliverance of the soul from death. This should be enticing to us. We're we're with the poet. We understand that God makes himself known and that all of the world ought to uh, to, uh, assent to God making himself known. And if they don't, they ought to be afraid. And we also know that we ourselves are the kind of people uh, that make our own plans and very often trust our own plans more than we trust the plans of God. However, there is a fear of God that leads to deliverance. There is a fear of God, a reverence for God, that delivers a soul from death. And there's just a hint here. But do you know... Mary, the mother of Jesus, also provides a similar hint. Picking up on some of the same vocabulary, when Mary goes to the home of Elizabeth in uh, Luke chapter 1, and then Mary uh, sings what seems to be a, a beautiful song called the Magnificat, Mary says this, she says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he has exalted those in humble estate. One wonders if the gospel that Mary preaches isn't exactly the same thing as the gospel that's preached to us in Psalm 33. You see, as a Christian, our circumstances melting before our very eyes aren't the source of despondency, but rather hope. How can that be? All of my plans have failed. Well, we know that God speaks loudly. And we know that our speaking is not what what saves. We know that the, the trials that we experience in life... And we know that the hope that we can have amidst those trials happens for one reason. Because God speaks loudly. 
and his purpose is secure. And what he is doing is far more important than what you are doing. And for you, Christian, all of your plans can melt before your very eyes. You can taste them tragically or you cannot taste them at all. You can still wander around thinking as though all of your plans are working. But your salvation is not based on any of that. It's based upon the loud speaking of God and his sure purpose. And here's where the the poet takes us. The very close, verses 20 through 22, the poet is teaching us actually how to understand his sermon. The poet is saying that that the well-oiled heart is ordered by watching a working God. Because all of the noise at the beginning of the poem, well, it becomes very quiet. And the poet doesn't tell us why it becomes quiet, but it does. The, the, The song began noisy. And then sometimes it would seem that noise is more internal than external. Sometimes the shouting happens while we're waiting because where the poet takes us is verse 20. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. That's why our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. We're waiting for him. And because of what he has done, we are actually able to wait. Very interestingly, Peter, when he's talking about suffering in 1 Peter chapter 3, he actually brings up the imagery of Psalm 34 and Psalm 33. Both Psalm 33 and 34 have this phrase, the eye of the Lord. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. That's an address to those who are believers, those who uh, place their trust in God. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. And then Peter actually quotes this phrase, not from Psalm 33, but Psalm 34. And listen what Peter says. This is in the context of suffering. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to what? To their prayer. To their prayer. Peter is addressing a church that is enduring great suffering. And the psalm then opens up with great shouts and praise to what God is doing, uh, his spoken word and his works in world history. But at the very end, he's waiting, and he can wait because he knows that the God who speaks and the God who works is not done yet. Here's the comfort that this this psalm brings us. Christian, you should know that you plan. You do this all the time. There's a sense in which you can't make it through life unless you plan. You know, here we are. We have uh, celebrated uh, the lives of graduates for this particular occasion. And most of the questions that they will receive and probably already have been receiving are questions having to do uh, with their plans. Vocationally, uh, to be sure. What are you going to do now? And there's a sense in which it's just what we do. We, we plan. And maybe some of you graduates should uh, turn that question around. And when someone asks, what are you going to do now? You ask them, what are you going to do now? And the psalmist takes us to the very end and tells us that sometimes the Christian life is just a lot of waiting. But it's different than the way a non-believer waits. The non-believer is waiting for those circumstances to change. And when the circumstances change, then then there will be reason for hope. 
But for the Christian, we understand that those circumstances may not change. And yet God still speaks. Those circumstances may not change, and yet God still works. Those circumstances may not change, and yet our false hopes are always false hopes. Those circumstances may not change, but God is God. God is God. And you see, the framework then for thankfulness is a framework that says that my heart uh, doesn't get to determine the plans of God. What God has started, God will bring to completion. And the well-oiled heart is the Christian heart that is able to struggle and yet still have gladness of heart. Because that heart is ordered not by watching their own works, but rather watching and trusting in the work of God. This is a quiet kind of praise, waiting as God's plan unfolds. Well, this is God's word for us this morning as we begin this series of psalms. Uh, Let's uh, pray together, and we will uh, continue in worship. Our Father, we are a people who we have all kinds of answers, and we think we know what we're doing. But this poet is teaching us that you are the great planner and that you know what you're doing. And we are grateful for your mercy, that you would know everything about us, that you would know how we chase after false hopes, but that your love for us would still be long-suffering. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you are with us and that you will bring your, your plan into completion. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be buttressed against the circumstances of life. That while we may not sing our praises loudly, that there would be gladness of heart because we trust your name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.